Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. The first memory of arriving in Lesbos was looking out of this tiny airplane that connects you between Athens and the islands, and the beaches were all orange. The beaches were orange from the life vests, so when people would arrive, they would get off the boats and take their life vests off and just leave them on the beach and then start walking towards volunteers who would drive people up to the camp. Humanitarian crises happen all around the world in every decade. This time, it happened in mainland Europe, and something about that immediacy awoke the social conscience of thousands of Europeans. A wave of volunteers, mostly untrained, made their way to Greece to meet the boats they'd seen coming in on the news. What I saw just completely changed my perception of everything because I'd grown up in a Europe where I thought that human rights were a thing that was taken for granted and that human rights abuses only happened outside of Europe. This is Aisha Keller. She went to the Greek island of Lesbos for a few days holiday in 2015. She ended up staying for a year. And I was very proudly European and felt very proud also to be British and that we had achieved a lot. And then I got to Greece and I was just so surprised and shocked to see this on Europe's borders. What Aisha found when she got to Lesbos was a totally overwhelmed group of official aid workers at Moria refugee camp. There were up to 10,000 people arriving per day. So it was completely over capacity, overcrowded. In the end, they were managing to squeeze about 2,000 people inside Moria, but then there was about 2,000, maybe 3,000 people outside who couldn't fit in, and they were on the surrounding olive grove. This is the story of how Aisha helped turn that olive grove into the base for a grassroots volunteer movement that arguably saved the lives of many in a refugee crisis that's seen over a million people make the perilous sea crossing to Greece and safety. This is Small Changes, a podcast about how sometimes the seemingly smallest change can have the biggest impact. I'm Lucy Lamble. So you quickly got swept up into, into the need. What did you do in your first few days? When I first arrived in, in Moria, on the olive grove, it was complete chaos. There was no structures in place. The big NGOs and the UN, UNHCR, they were focused inside Moria and they were completely over capacity. They, they could hardly, well, they couldn't meet the needs of the people inside Moria. And they didn't even try to meet the needs of the people outside Moria because they were just so overwhelmed. So outside Moria, there was this, this olive grove and it was just 
it was crazy. People were burning the olive trees to stay warm because it actually gets really cold in Lesbos. It can go up down to minus 10 degrees in winter, which I think a lot of people aren't aware of. I certainly had a very different image of um, Greek holiday islands. And um, it was dirty. It was messy. There was rubbish everywhere. Once once the trees had been burnt, there wasn't much left. I mean, there were thousands of people coming through. People were burning plastic to stay warm. There was human feces all over the place. There was um, broken tents. It was just... It was just, it was crazy. It just, I couldn't believe I was in Europe. I was like, what on earth is going on here? It looked like some awful scene from a movie or something. And there were kids lying on the floor in the mud because there was nowhere else to be. And it was really difficult. And there were a lot of volunteers who were doing amazing work, but just really overwhelmed because it was completely Um, Just independent volunteers would go into town and buy lots of food and then drive up to the camp, open the boot and just hand out the food. And within two minutes, all the food had gone and then they would drive back into town and try and get more. And it was very hard to do the distributions in a sensible way where it didn't just end up being everybody running and trying to grab food because people were really hungry. And there just was there was no supplies. And what were the authorities saying at this point? At that stage, they weren't really aware of us. They weren't really talking about it. We used to struggle quite a lot because we would go into these official meetings once a week and they would always talk about what was happening inside Mori and what needed to be improved. And we'd be like, guys, there's also two, 3,000 people outside Moria. Right now, I think there's actually more people outside Moria than inside Moria. And they're completely being looked after by volunteers. Like we could really do with some support. But the reality was that they just, didn't have the capacity somehow I'm not I don't really know they certainly had way more money than the volunteers did but I think that the nature of the crisis just meant that the volunteer effort was just much better set up to respond because the situation changed all the time And the way the authorities and the official big NGOs work is because they have to be really accountable and they have to make sure that there's no corruption, their systems are very slow. So if they want um, to get in food to feed people, they have to set out a tender. Then all the local suppliers can can. Uh, bid for the tender and then the, the one that wins then gets the contract they then have to agree on an amount they have to get the funding approved they have to have receipts so then they maybe agree on amount for a thousand meals per day and one day only 500 people arrive so they have to throw food away and then it's bad weather and nobody arrives for a few days and then suddenly it's nice weather again and 5,000 arrive in one day and there's no food. So their systems just didn't allow them to respond to the situation in a sensible way whereas the volunteer response we were completely flexible so if suddenly few people arrived for a few days we just made less food and when lots of people arrived we cooked 24 hours till everybody was fed so there was just an ability to respond and I think that was a really important part of of the volunteer response and the grassroots movement. It was at this point that this grassroots movement was born. The volunteers who weren't allowed to help inside the Moria camp realised they'd have to focus their efforts instead outside a small group of them, along with Aisha, decided to get organised. 
I arrived just as a couple of other independent volunteers had come together and looked at the situation and said, hey, you know what? We could do this better if we create some sort of a structure. And the first thing we did was speak to the farmer who owned the land, who was very unhappy, obviously, that his land was being destroyed in this way. And the olive trees grow very slowly, so his harvest was ruined for quite a few years. And um, we spoke to him and said, could we rent the land from you? Could we officially you know, have this camp here. And he was very happy to do that because it meant that he could get an income from a situation that was happening anyway. And we also paid quite well. So it sort of made up for the losses that he will also make in the next few years. How did you raise the money to do that? It was all crowdfunded. I mean, the grassroots response is such an amazing thing because you just had these groups of people that came together. I mean, the, the first few volunteers that founded at the time, it was called Better Days for Moria. And then later on, we renamed to, Together for Better Days. We no, None of us knew each other. We were all from different countries. The, the first three who had the idea were from Switzerland, the UK and Cyprus, Greece. And then more people kind of joined the mix and there were lots of different groups and there were lots of individuals also arriving and wanting to help and not really knowing what to do. And that original rent was paid by a Swiss group of volunteers who, who turned up and wanted to help. And then another group um, from Holland came over. They are festival builders in the summers. And so they managed to use all their contacts to bring in tents and also their knowledge to work in big muddy fields full of people in a chaotic environment. They built our first structures. They created the camp actually in the style of a music festival because it's actually a very effective model for such a situation, which was quite interesting having a sort of music festival feel in the refugee camp. And then we also had a group from Bristol, the Bristol Skiption Group, who do a lot of recycled food waste projects. They came and they saw the potential, so they set up the sort of on-camp kitchen. We had a local family from Lesfos who set up the kids' tent. We had a group of doctors turn up and they then founded their own medical NGO to try and meet those needs. So people were just turning up and seeing the needs and filling the gaps. And often structures help things to be a bit more effective. And so if the structures weren't in place yet, we created the structures often to get donations. It helps if you have an organization, if you have a name. So these little organizations were springing up. And and what our role as Better Days was, is we were the umbrella organization. We, we kind of set the scene. We, had, we rented the land. We gave the opportunity. And it was all about collaboration and solidarity. And it was all about everyone working together and not competing with each other and not saying, oh, this is your mandate. This is my mandate. No, we can't offer that because it's not within our mandate. It was always about seeing what the gaps were and responding in a really organic way. We got this audio of the Olive Grove camp from a filmmaker who was volunteering as a lifeguard in Lesbos while Aisha's group Better Days for Moria was in full swing. It's funny how much it really does look like a festival. The tents have got those same circus-style tops. What's striking is how full and how organised it is. It's totally packed with people, there's signposts everywhere, pointing the way to the loos, charging points, doctors. There's a brightly painted kids' area with miniature furniture and a small plastic playground slide outside. A bunch of young guys shooting a ball at a makeshift basketball hoop. 
There's also a lot of low-key protesting. The volunteers made it as comfortable as they could here, but there's no forgetting that this is ultimately somewhere nobody wants to be. There's no ignoring how thick the mud is, how cold everyone looks. After this quick break, we're talking challenges. How do you organise a huge bunch of random volunteers? And is it possible to safeguard against the wrong kind of volunteer? The chance for something like a sexual misconduct to happen uh, was, there wasn't, I hope it didn't, it wasn't so easy, it wasn't the opportune environment for that. So you essentially acquired that land, created all these structures to make it into a proper camp for this overflow of people who couldn't fit into the official camp, and you had this big volunteer workforce to help run it. How did you make that work? Whenever the new volunteers arrived, we always had an induction with them every day at three o'clock. There was a welcome meeting and then we would speak to them all and ask them, what are your skills? And if they were doctors or nurses, we would send them to the medical tent. If they said, you know what, I haven't got that many skills, but I'm really good at chopping vegetables, would send them to the kitchen tent to help chop thousands of vegetables every day because we were feeding thousands of people, 8,000 meals per day usually, something around that. Um, if people said, um, for example, we had one expert come in who was very helpful in that he his, his job was um, designing queuing systems for airports. And so he helped us hugely with our crowd management and setting up more dignified queuing systems for food and for distribution. We had people who turned up who had really good organization skills. So we put them into the clothing distribution because that was always a very complex area to work in. We had people who spoke Farsi or Arabic or other languages who could work um, helping with translation. We had people with maybe business backgrounds who are very good at developing systems and looking at um, ways to optimize situations who would maybe look at more the strategic how can we make this camp work more efficiently what what new systems could we bring into place how can we organize our meetings how can we create communication when we've got such a turnover because we had people coming from between two hours up to a year so it was really mixed and the way we ended up what we did is we had like a hierarchy of, of jobs rather than a hierarchy of of people and depending how long you came you would do the job so if you only came for two hours you would be litter picking because that's something that always needs to be done but it doesn't really require much skills anyone can do it if you were staying a little bit longer then you could get a bit more training you would learn from each other and you could then take on more responsibilities. We all had training in how to deal with hypothermia. So it was things like making sure people got out of their wet clothes, their really wet, cold clothes as quickly as possible, getting people into fresh clothes. So the clothing distribution and the changing rooms are really important. Then making sure that they got warm, that they got nourished. So we'd always have hot soup, hot tea, chai, with quite sweet as well, because that would really help the shock. And then the most important thing was to get people information so they knew how how to go through the registration procedure, um, how to, where they needed to go. And then during the day, it would be maybe playing with the kids while their parents were having the interview or something like that. So it, none of, we weren't doing deep psychosocial support of vulnerable people. It was really more about making sure 
the basics were in place that people could survive and, and help themselves. I mean, one of the things that you always have to remember is these people, they've had incredible journeys behind them. They've overcome so many obstacles. They've just risked their life crossing the sea. Many of them have seen other people dying on the journeys. Most of them have lost at least some relatives on the journey or before they left. These these people are survivors. I mean, they're victims as well, but they're very, very strong. They, they know they're very, very capable. And so we didn't need to like hold their hands and comfort them and, you know, look after them, which would require a training as a psychologist. That wasn't our role. Our role was to make sure that they could survive and making people feel welcome. That was also important to us. Our camp was very colorful and bright and welcoming and we had a big welcome sign and a big safe passage sign when they left because we knew that this was sort of the halfway point in the journey and they still had a lot ahead of them and we wanted people just to be able to feel like they were in a safe space where they could just relax for a few minutes and have a cup of tea and feel safe and feel welcomed before they continued on their journey and had to face a lot of other difficulties. There's always criticism when there's humanitarian or disaster response um, that somehow well-meaning people but essentially amateurs arrive and and set up camp and get going. How, How do you respond to that? I think it's a really valid concern and in different situations I think it's it's also very true. Um, you don't want people who have no experience just going and working with very vulnerable people. And so I do really understand the concern. However, in Greece at, at that time, the situation was so unusual and so unprecedented that the normal systems, the normal way of doing things just didn't work. It completely collapsed. And had those amateur volunteers not been there, I imagine many, many, many more people would have died. And so at the end of the day, I was having this discussion with a a UNHCR protection officer because she said, I'm in this really difficult situation because we're not allowed to work with you because you guys haven't had criminal background checks. You haven't had um, been trained. You don't you're all just random people have turned up. We don't know who you are. We can't really support you working with these very vulnerable people. But on the other hand, we know that if you go, thousands of people will die. This was at the time during the Idomeni crisis. And because we literally cannot deal with it. So it was this very interesting conversation where she was like recognizing the need for us, but also realizing that within the current structure, there was no way to to work together in a in a way that would be officially accepted. So we had to find lots and lots of unofficial cooperations and way to work together. In the past year, we've seen revelation after revelation of sexual exploitation and other kinds of misconduct coming to, to the fore. Um, and recently in humanitarian response specifically too. What do you make of that? And um, how did you address the safeguarding aspects, especially with volunteers that you didn't know? That's a really good question, and it's something that I worked on a lot. Um, during our time in Moria, the situation was so intense and things were moving so quickly that we didn't have the opportunity often to look into these questions and, and find ways to address it because we were a 
a transit camp. So people came and left very quickly. And it was just a real focus on the basic survival um, because there were literally thousands of people and there was no way that we could have looked after people in the way we did or offered the service that we did if we'd gone through intense training and background checks on every single person and that's the reason we were even there because the NGOs the officials were doing all of that and therefore had nowhere near the amount of staff that they needed to cover it so the volunteers filled that gap and it was always something that we were aware of and um, a bit concerned about but I hope I never heard of anything and I hope it didn't happen it's always hard to tell but I think our best mechanism against it was that we were so many people and it was there was no like private space it was a completely open space and everybody was kind of watching each other so I think the the chance for something like a sexual misconduct to happen there wasn't I hope it didn't it wasn't so easy that it wasn't the opportune environment for that um, and I think there was definitely just a focus on bringing people through. And what's it like being a volunteer in such an intense environment? I think every volunteer who goes into that experience comes out different it's such a life-changing experience because you see humanity in its most raw sense and you really connect with people and if you think about or at least for my experience in my normal life until that moment I could sometimes work with colleagues for a year or two and I would hardly know them there wasn't really that deep human connection and suddenly I'm on this camp and I'm connecting with people on such a deep level even though I don't speak the language and the work is so intense, but also so rewarding because you literally are seeing the results of what you're doing every day, all the time. And it was, it was, it was so, it was so highs and lows. There'd be these heartbreaking moments where I still remember on my first night there, I was, my job was basically as a human signpost was just to tell people where to go. And this couple arrived um, with their baby. And it was two o'clock in the morning and it was dark and cold and they were asking if they could go inside. And I was saying, I'm really sorry, but it's completely chock-a-block full. There's no space and they're not letting anybody out saying like the police. I've asked a few times already. There's there's no way. So unfortunately, you're not you can't go in. And they were like, OK, so what do we do? And I said, honestly, the the only thing I can suggest is find some cardboard that's lying around. Maybe see if you can find a fire, see if you can join someone else's fire and then just sit there till it was 2 a.m. So five hours till 7 a.m. when we'll be serving breakfast and you can get some warm food. And then hopefully the first people will go through registration in the morning, move on, and then there'll be space for you to be able to go inside and have a roof over your head. And it was such a strange experience because this was also just before Christmas. And I really felt like I was the innkeeper from the Christmas story, like sending these people away. And it just felt so strange. And I was like, why am I this young woman who actually doesn't have much world experience suddenly in this position of 
power and authority that I decide what, I mean, it wasn't my choice, but that I'm telling people that they can or cannot sleep somewhere because to a certain extent, I did also have to decide like the most vulnerable cases as well. They could go inside and the less vulnerable cases couldn't. And I didn't like that very much. I didn't like this, this suddenly being in position of power where you realize how unfair things are. Why did you decide uh, to leave in the end? So most of the volunteers would burn out, usually after about a month. Um, some I saw even after two weeks, um, some a few more months. Um, the Most of the volunteers also were there shorter term. There weren't that many of us who basically made it our full-time job because it's, I mean, we were volunteers, we weren't paid. So once one, you needed to be in a financial situation to support yourself, which I was lucky that I'd just been working in Switzerland and I had savings. So that's what I was living off, plus um, donations from friends and family and so on to keep doing the work I was doing. But most people weren't able to do that. They would maybe come for holidays and many would return. They would come for a couple of weeks and they would go back to work for a few months and they would come back again. But I stayed a year and I at some point after a year was just pretty burnt out. And I also realized that in order to help people, you need to be in a good space. If you're not in a good space, if you're burnt out, if you're getting frustrated and really angry at the system, it doesn't help anybody because you just start um, giving off those negative vibes. And it's really important to be in a positive mindset and a positive space. So I realized it was time for me to take a break so I came back to UK in Christmas 2016. And to what extent would you say that your earlier idealistic belief in Europe as, as a haven of, of human rights is still intact? I were, It was completely destroyed. It wasn't intact at all. I felt very betrayed. I felt very much like I'd been let down. I felt like I'd been told a lie. I felt like I'd grown up in a system where I had been forced naivety, where I just heard about this great British empire and about how the UK is so fantastic and um, we've done all these wonderful things and that we've now got everything sorted and and then it wasn't true. And I and I looked at I started spending a lot more time with the asylum policies and trying to understand what do these policies actually mean, what of its law, what of its agreements, like how does this all work? And I was the more I found out, the more disappointed I got and the more shocked I got and the more confused I got and started thinking, how on earth are we supposed to solve this? At the time of recording this podcast, there's been just under 2,500 crossings to Greece since the start of 2018. Moria Camp is still thousands over capacity. Families are still sleeping in the olive grove. Aisha's volunteer group is now an official NGO, formerly called Better Days for Moria. They're now Together for Better Days. If you liked this episode, then please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Small Changes is a global development podcast. You can read our work at theguardian.com forward slash global hyphen development. And join the discussion on Twitter. We're at Guardian Podcasts. We'll be back next week. I'm Lucy Lamble. The producer is Gabriella Jones. This was Small Changes. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.